You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 24th, 2008, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And Evan Bernstein. Hi, everyone. On this date in 1947, Majestic 12 is allegedly established by secret executive order of President Harry Truman. MJ-12. Good old MJ-12. That's a com- completely fabricated conspiracy theory about an inner government agency that is hiding all the UFO information. Oh, it's not, it's not a conspiracy. It really happened, yeah. And it's also known, by the way, for the record, as Magic 12, Majestic Trust M12, MJ12, MJ Roman numeral 12, or Majority 12. So choose your favorite, I guess, amongst those. Now, if I, if I remember correctly, the uh, Truman's signature on the forged documents was matched to a template signature that it was copied from, and it was uh, Philip Class who made that connection. So that was one of the major pieces of evidence debunking that as a fake. Yeah, it was basically a fake document. Once that was established as a fake, the whole thing came tumbling down. Right. But it still lives in legend and is often referenced in many a science fiction movie, and I'm sure it'll live forever. So MJ-12 on this day. Yeah, it's good fiction. It is. Jay is off this evening, but he should be back next week. Uh, It's a little follow-up on the Large Hadron Collider. It, on September 10th, it successfully fired up and shot some protons around the uh, the collider. And then on September 11th, it shut down. Yeah, that's pretty disappointing. Uh, they had a mechanical failure that triggered a helium leak, which forced the shutdown. Um, initially, they said it would be for a few months, um, which isn't too bad. But now they're saying that it won't be back until early spring 2009. Yeah, because they have wow. to they have to do their obligatory winter maintenance, so they won't get it up in time for that. So they have to before they even get it up and running, they have to do maintenance over the winter. So the earliest they can get it running is the early spring. I don't know why they just don't skip the maintenance, skip the winter maintenance. I mean, they've been working on this for so long, isn't it? Just ready to go, just prepare it, and don't don't clean the toilets and stuff, and just get this thing going <laughs> at the risk Come of damaging on. it. Or well, they waited this long; they could wait a few months more. Yeah, well, the, the CERN Director General Robert Amar saying in a pre- press release that it's undoubtedly a psychological blow, but I have no doubt that we will overcome the setback with the same degree of rigor and application. Of course. So no no strangelets or black holes for until spring, so we could relax for a little while. Oh, That's right. And this is all now, caused by just a transformer uh, failing, a connection between two of the supercooled magnets, I think it was bad. Right. And... The whole thing has to be kept at two degrees Kelvin, which is chilly. What we call damn cold. Yeah. And with this with this failure, it actually heated all the way up to four degrees Kelvin. But apparently, that's too hot. Mm-hmm. So they had to and shut then, the thing uh, down. Right. Now, and the, to repair it, they'd have to they have to wait. And the sector has to be brought back to room temperature, which apparently will take three or four weeks. weeks. Yeah, so every time they got to fix something, it takes three to four weeks to get the sector up to room temperature again. Well, it makes sense. I mean, if you heat or cool something any faster than that, I mean, more crap would be breaking all over the place. I bet. Yeah, that's true. Can't they just send technicians in there at two at four degrees? 
Just put a, like a really or thick sweater on it. Yeah, gloves. <laughs> an extra cardigan. <laughs> gloves yeah. and a hoodie how, how and just like run in. Go fast. Just go fix fast. It fast. <laughs> Hire really some brisk. polar bear guys to do it. Ha- have the conspiracy fellows uh, shown themselves and have come up with things such as, oh, the government de- deliberately shut this down because they realized they were on the brink of creating the worst catastrophe in the known galaxy. Don't give him any ideas, Evan. I haven't seen it, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, so we'll keep an eye open for stories like that to come out. And- so that's it's, a, it's disappointing, but you know, this is the most complicated piece of equipment that, we, that anyone's ever built. It's got, I mean, so many interdependent parts. It's, it's amazing if it works at all. I mean, it, it, not surprising that there was a little glitch. Yeah, and it's, um, from what I've read, it's somewhat common for these either short-term or somewhat long-term setbacks uh, in the initial stages of testing a new, a new facility like this. So, you know, things like this happens, and we just got to cross your fingers, wait, and hopefully they'll get the protons knocking into each other, yeah. you know, soon. Yeah, this kind of big science ain't easy. Well, we waited 13.7 billion years. We can wait a few more months, I guess. I guess so. Well, when you put it that way. <laughs> Uh, the next news item is about a acupuncture study. These come up, it seems like every few weeks there's another acupuncture study in the news. And for some reason, the, the news outlets think it's such a huge deal every time one of these studies gets published. What they're essentially doing is just reprinting the press releases without really much critical analysis or any background. It's just like, oh, look, at this is, here's what the proponents say. And there's no filtering whatsoever. This one, we got a lot of a lot of email about this one, so obviously um, it had a fairly high profile. And I want to use it. I don't, you know, I can't talk about every single acupuncture study that that gets published, but I wanted to use this to talk about some basic principles. So this one was an acupuncture study for hot flashes and other symptoms in women who have had breast cancer and are, who are getting hormone therapy for their breast cancer, specifically tamoxifen or arimidex, which are drugs that will cause hot flashes and other hormonal symptoms. The study compared acupuncture to a drug Effexor, which is used uh, to treat these side effects. And they found that the acupuncture was just as effective as the Effexor, but the benefits lasted longer. Now, this is an utterly worthless study. And, but it's a good example of just some basic principles of how to think about the quality of a clinical study that gets presented in the press. So when you know, you're reading about another you know, news story about the, another clinical study that's been done, you should at least have some um, basic idea of how to evaluate the quality of the study. The first thing you need to look at is you know, how big is the study. This had 47 patients. That's a very small for a clinical study. That means there was you know, 20-something patients in each of these two arms. That's a very small number. So that's at best, you would consider that a, pr- a preliminary study or what's often called a pilot study. Far worse than that in terms of the implications of the study is it was unblinded. So everyone knew who was getting the acupuncture and who was getting the effexor. That opens the door for a huge placebo effect. Now, an unblinded study can't really show anything in terms of a clinical trial. Again, at best, this is a really preliminary study used to see if a treatment is worth further study. That's it. It's not, it should not be used to make clinical decisions. But if you read the press releases for this study, for example, Eleanor Walker, who is the, the head of the study, said in the press release, 
Our study shows that physicians and patients have an additional therapy for something that affects the majority of breast cancer survivors, etc. Wrong. The study didn't show that because this was not powered to show it and it was not designed to make any clinical judgments based upon the results of this study. Some other other things to think about when you're comparing two treatments, you have to think, well, how good is the treatment that it's being compared to? There was no placebo arm in this study at all. So you're not saying that this works better than a placebo. You're saying it works as well as Effexor. Well, it turns out Effexor is mild to moderately effective for the side effects. In any case, it's not terribly effective. And Effexor has a lot of side effects. So for, for many people taking that medication to, to treat the side effects of these um, hormonal therapies, the side effects are as bad as any benefit they get from it. So you're comparing acupuncture to a not terribly effective treatment with a small number of people in an unblinded fashion. That means the noise and the placebo effect is going to be far greater than any actual effect from the treatments. We don't even know if this, if this study was capable of showing a difference between the treatment and placebo, let alone between the two treatments. So the fact that acupuncture was no different than Effexor could mean that the whole thing was just a wash, just didn't show anything. Those are things to consider. How big is the study? Was it blinded? What, were the, what was actually being compared? When you look at those things, this study is worthless, other than as a preliminary study. But here's the thing, and I talk about this in great detail in the, uh, the Science-Based Medicine blog if you want to read further on it. The question that comes up with these kinds of acupuncture studies is why is a preliminary study being done at this stage of the game? This is the kind of thing that's done when, it's, when a therapy is first being proposed or is a new is a new concept acupuncture's been around for decades it's been studied and and used and looked at for these side effects for a long time in fact there are already studies that are better designed that are um, controlled, blinded studies with sham acupuncture that show no benefit for hot flashes. So now these researchers are going backwards. We already have better studies showing that it doesn't work. So now they're doing, usually the arc of clinical trials is you go from smaller and open trials to bigger, better controlled, better blinded, you know, randomized trials so that you get more definitive evidence this is going backwards. This is going. This is doing a weaker study. You know, why would you do that? Uh, it's not adding anything to the scientific literature because it's too preliminary. And this happens all the time now with acupuncture studies. Three weeks ago, I blogged on Neurologica about another acupuncture study. This one with headache. Same thing. Already shown in lar- in sham acupuncture, well controlled trials that there's no effect. So the researchers decide to do an unblinded study. Totally worthless. Although this was a huge unblinded study, which just means they wasted a lot of money and time doing it. And the only reason for doing unblinded studies is because you want to guarantee that you're going to get a positive result so that you can promote a treatment that is dubious or that won't work when you do well-controlled studies. It's going backwards. I can tell you feel quite passionate about this, Steve, because you've been talking about it for a long time, nonstop. <laughs> yeah. uh, years. And the only thing I have to add is that you said that uh, acupuncture has been around for decades. I could see our uh, listeners reaching for their emails right now. Um, it's been around for thousands of years. It's been studied for the past 
several decades. Well, yeah, I mean, acupuncture is you know two to three thousand years old, you know, part of traditional Chinese medicine, but it's been around in the West. It's been since the nineteen seventies, scientifically studied for the past yeah. few de- decades. Yes, yeah, I just the, since wanted to clear 70s. that up because I know yeah. otherwise we would get emails. That's all. Yeah, because Joe Pedantic listener will email us. Hey, what's up, Joe Pedantic? He's our no, that's a that's a good point. That's a good point. But that that's what I meant. That's been around here and being studied for 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 decades. We love you, Joe. The point is, we're long past the preliminary study stage. This is yes. really a waste of everybody's time. Steve, you wrote here in your conclusion, acupuncture remains a highly implausible treatment. So, can you give us a better scale of how implausible, highly implausible is? I mean. It's high, it's not as bad as homeopathy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's our most plausible alternative uh, treatment. Well, well except it, for it like de- herbs and stuff. But now, yeah, I think er- herbs I think of as the most plausible because yeah. they're just drugs. It's just a matter of yeah. is, does the evidence support their safety and. But when it comes to things that we don't really understand yet, I think that acupuncture is probably up there the most. It it's one notch more more plausible than those modalities that are that are pure magic like homeopathy or energy healing anything like therapeutic touch where nothing's actually happening it's really all just magic <laughs> right. in acupuncture at least you're sticking a needle through the skin and right. and that creates the potential for there to be something physiological yeah. happening right if but you don't forget you, you we are excluding the whole meridian flow of energy baloney. Well, I was that's, about to bring that right, up. Right. That's not even yes, close. Yes, exactly. Now, the, the, the proposed mechanism for acupuncture, according to its roots, its traditional Chinese medicine, is that it's altering the flow of qi, of the yin and yang of qi through the body. Again, it's a life energy magic, you know, superstitious modality. So certainly that's not happening. There's okay. no evidence that qi exists. There's no evidence for meridians or the flow of qi or yin and yang. It's all you know, pre-scientific notions. Is it possibly there, causing the body to secrete something that we somehow can't figure it out? Th- so if you get rid of the, those, that possibility and say, okay, there's, there's no qi, but is, there, is it doing something else physiological that maybe is causing some counter-irritation? Maybe it's releasing endorphins, which is sort of a natural painkiller. You know, maybe it's... You know, causing some kind of feedback that may be inhibiting nausea or something centrally in the brain or something. It's like those are not implausible for temporary, mild, symptomatic relief of things like, you know, pain or nausea. It's not impossible. The thing is, the studies just haven't shown a specific effect from acupuncture. So it doesn't seem to have any effect above and beyond just getting a massage or getting relaxation therapy or, you know, just getting a back rub or just a really nonspecific benefit from just any kind of physical contact. There, no one's been able to show a mechanism or that an, a specific physiological effect actually happens. If there is an effect, it's been elusive, which tells us that it's, it's a small, you know, transient effect, but not impossible. But the, the, here's the thing. And this is similar, very, very similar to chiropractic where, yeah, you know, you manipulate the back, you're going to get some muscle relaxation, which could be useful for, you know, acute, uncomplicated lower back strain. But the sort of nonspecific symptomatic effects are being used to justify medical applications. So then people say, okay, well, then you could use acupuncture to treat cancer, right? Or, you know, things for which you would need some mechanism above and beyond some local counter irritation. And that's the problem of, you know, having all the ritual and magic surrounding what is at its core a very nonspecific 
physical kind of uh, mechanism that might be going on, right? So that's the danger: is that acupuncture exists as a as a system, an alternate system of healthcare that that has a lot of pseudoscience coming along for the ride. So, and these studies support all of that. The way the way they are used, you know, to just promote acupuncture. That's the problem I have with these these kind of studies. They're they're not advancing the science. It's really just for propaganda purposes. Well, let's move on to the next news item. Uh, Bob, you're going to tell us about Japan's plan to build a space elevator. <laughs> this is pretty cool. Japan recently announced uh, that their long-term space develop- development plans now include building a, building a space elevator. So here's, here's a new acronym for you. The JSEA, or Japanese Space Elevator Association, believes you can build one for about a trillion yen uh, which is about a little less than ten billion uh, U.S. dollars. Uh, it's fairly reasonable when you think of what you're getting out of this thing. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, Especially now, you know, space elevator. An elevator to space. space. <laughs> yeah, like it's pretty obvious. Fifty-five thousandth floor, please. <laughs> yeah, that's funny you said that because one article said uh, one trillionth floor, please. It's a little uh, bigger number than you chose. But the oh. idea behind this is you've got you've got these special cables that are with one end tethered to the earth, the other end tethered or attached to a weight like a satellite beyond uh, geosynchronous orbit over 22,000 miles away. And then attached to this cable would be these cargo climbers that could ascend the cable uh, using uh, power that's generated externally, such as through like lasers and solar cells and things so that the cargo capacity uh, could get get very huge, one ton, 10 tons, 20 tons. So that's basically their idea. And And they're going forward with this but this is not a new idea. This is proposed uh, first in 1895 by uh, Konstantin Shilkovsky uh, after, after he pondered the, uh, the Eiffel Tower. In the 1960s, another Russian started studying it again along with uh, some Americans. Of course, this entered a broader, you know, the broader cultural awareness uh, from science fiction such as Arthur C. Clarke's The Foundations of Paradise, which uh, prominently figured a, uh, a space uh, elevator not only on the cover, but as as part of the uh, the plot. Um, so, all right. So, why take on this futuristic, seemingly impossible, expensive engineering mega project? Why why do this? Because an escalator would have cost too much. <laughs> right. <laughs> you couldn't get the right. Idea. And if it stopped, you'd be waiting for a long time. <laughs> I see two. I see two reasons. First off, it's feasible, in my opinion. Secondly, ultimately, whoever, but not with current technology. Uh, no, but it's but how how close is it? It's kind of tied into that. Yeah. But number two, more importantly, number two, whoever builds this first owns space. Yeah. Game over. Whoever whoever does this, whatever country, whatever multinational consortium, whatever government does this first, you literally own space. Think about it. Ten thousand dollars to put a pound of anything into space right now. Using right. a space elevator, it could potentially decrease a hundred times or more. Imagine a hundred dollars to put a pound into orbit. I mean, pretty amazing stuff. Uh, Suicho Ono, chairman of the uh, JSEA, says that just like traveling abroad, anyone will be able to ride the elevator into space. But it's just not. It's not just people, though. The barriers for exploiting space would finally drop, and we'd be able to do all those things we've been talking about for decades. And, it's a game changer. And, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Things that imagined only in science fiction movies, constructing space habitats, zero-G manufacturing facilities, solar power collectors that could beam solar power to space, tourism, um, removing man-made debris from orbit. All these things would be much, much easier to do, much cheaper to do, and to pull off. Anyone right, now, who, who's so here's, here's my thing. problem, 
with this right. initiative at this point in time. Uh, is is this premature? I mean, that's the first thing I thought of when I saw this. It was, well, okay, eventually this is something that – a project that somebody should undertake. But I wonder if the prerequisite technologies don't exist yet. Is this like having a space program in the 1920s where it's just there are certain things right. that just have to happen before you can even really begin to, 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 to conceive of this? The primary thing being cables that are strong enough. We don't have them yet. So until you right. have a cable – which, what you really what you really have is a cable program, right? You have a program to to figure out how to make a cable strong enough. Well, yeah, I mean nobody nobody's saying that they're they're starting to build it now, and and all the the engineering ch- uh, challenges have been tackled and and ready to go. Nobody's saying that. And you said that Steve is it is it premature to even conceive of this? I don't know if you've misspoke, but it's absolutely not too not too early to to, to conceive of it. Not and to conceive, have, I mean to work on it to to actually have a program. Okay. I don't think it's too early because the um, if you look at all the engineering uh, roadblocks, they are there's nothing that that we can't conceivably overcome in in less than a generation. The the uh, the cable technology itself was always always that was the, that was the the conversation ender right there. Oh, there's, we don't have anything that's even close to being strong enough. You would need something like steel that's lighter and 180 times stronger, all this stuff. And then, of course, in 1991, our best friend, our buddies, the carbon nanotubes, uh, was yeah. discovered. And uh, and these things really could could have the strength to do this. Yeah. And they've been working on these pretty much nonstop since 91. It's generally considered, I think, that the carbon nanotubes will do this and that we are very close to being able to make them st- not only strong enough, which we, which they're very close to being, if not already, it's actually the the polymer that you embed the the nanotube into that's got that's kind of like the weak link, and also it's the length of the fiber. Yeah. You've got you've got to be able to make you know a very long uh, fiber, uh, pure you know, you know nanotubes with this, and that seems doable too. They're getting longer and longer all the time, so it's it's definitely I feel it's definitely the right time to actually start j- to try to to knock down some of these stumbling blocks and then we could actually start actually building it. Yeah, yeah, it'd be cool to see if we could see this in 20 or 30 years. Uh, I'm just wondering if there's anything that you're doing today is going to give you an advantage if you, you know, wait 10 years until you actually can make long carbon nanotubes and then start a program well, you have really lost any time, I guess is my question. Yeah, it's a good question. It reminds me of when Japan first dove into the whole high-definition market, and they created co- kind of like uh, a fusion of analog and digital uh, HD uh, you know, TV signals. They were pretty good, better than, um, better than uh, the analog stuff. But then, of course, uh, five or six years later, pure digital HD came out and just blew away their efforts and kind right. of – with, so yeah, I, could, I, yeah. I see what you're saying, but if you've got the manufacturing infrastructure to produce, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of miles of of uh, the the nanotube. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's uh, the technology. Ribbon, I mean, that's, that's as I said, that's in my mind, that's what this is really all about, and that, that's a, that's, that's a technology that has multiple applications. The oh space elevator is only one. So, nanotubes. I mean, just yeah, Google the carbon nanotubes. nanotubes. Yeah, so I think Com- that, you know, computers, I think, bulletproof vests, you name it. You, the the yeah. potential applications of the uh, the, the carbon nanotubes this right. seems like uh, a wish list. So right. It's amazing. If only a, a small fraction pan out, it would it would still be incredible. Well, definitely something to keep an eye on. Sounds cool. Yeah. The next news item has to do with a survey about American beliefs and the reporting of this survey in various journals, including the Wall Street 
Journal. Rebecca, you blogged. I'm not about sure this that you day. could call that reporting. <laughs> well, you know, the it was Wall- bad reporting is still reporting. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal gets an F this week. Sorry, I'm sure they're going to be crushed to find out. Yeah, so basically, uh, Baylor University has a religion survey. It's one of the largest out there. It happens every couple of years. So we just got the results from their most recent one, and. It's interesting. It always is. And the problem is that it's easy in cases like this to kind of twist things to however you would like them to seem. So in this case, uh, one of their findings was that while belief in God increased, the level of other superstitious beliefs decreased. You know, there's a whole lot of problems with it, not to mention things like correlation and causation, as well as, you know, what are you defining as a superstition and why isn't why isn't a religious belief considered a superstition? It's all very odd. And it was taken way to the extreme by a writer who somehow managed to get published in the Wall Street Journal. Um, her name is Molly Ziegler Hemingway, and a lot of our readers that's sent this in. Did you say that's hot? I said, no, that's how she got published, Hemingway. Oh, that's how. The, the last name, yeah. Yeah. yeah she's, they said, stop, you had me at Hemingway. <laughs> she's not really living up to it. She's a blogger at GetReligion.org, if that gives you any hint as to what her, what her motivation might be. Right. But what she came up with out of, out of the survey was the following. She said that the reality is that the new atheist campaign by discouraging religion won't create a new group of intelligent, skeptical, enlightened beings. Far from it, it might actually encourage new levels of mass superstition. And that is just so wrong on a number of levels. Um, First of all, she's creating a bit of a straw man there by suggesting that uh, Dawkins and Hitchens and all of them um, believe that by getting rid of religion, we will automatically make, uh, you know, 100% rational society. They've never said any such thing. Really, though, the, the main problem is that she's, uh, she's drawing this obviously incorrect conclusion by saying that religious people are less, supersti- less superstitious than non-religious people. A- as proof, she brings up this survey, and she also calls into question um, Bill Maher, who happens to be an atheist with some kooky beliefs. I think we've talked about him on the show before. Yeah. Um, like astrology and other things. He's yeah. he's into uh, he he mostly is into he's like an anti vaccination guy. He doesn't believe in Western medicine, and he spouts he's a nut. off of he's a nut. yeah. He spouts off about it all the time. It's silly to point to him and say, "Look, it's an atheist who's irrational," and say that therefore religious people are more rational. It kind of makes you wonder: is the solution to force everybody to become a Christian and therefore become more rational. Altogether, it's just a ridiculous article that's chock full of logical fallacies. There are a couple I would like to point out, though. Okay, of course. I I think she totally blew the interpretation of this data. Just forget about her agenda, whatever. This is just a completely wrong way to interpret this data. A couple things to point out. So she says, and this this is directly from the survey, that while 31% of people who never worship expressed strong belief in these things, meaning Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster, only 8% of people who attend 
uh, house of worship more than once a week did. Now, people who go to church more than once a week are a specific you know type of person. I mean, that's not just anyone who believes in God. That's that's hardcore. You know, religion is a very very deep part of your life. And here's the other thing. 36% of people belonging to the United Church of Christ, which they mention because that's Barack Obama's former denomination, express strong beliefs in the paranormal. That's greater than the 31% of who don't go to church, right? So that's it, not even consistent, right? You have because 36%, even greater than the 31% that she was quoting, and the 8% is a very, very you know, small you know, subset. The other thing is I think that this comes from uh, looking at the data from a very narrow perspective. Specifically, she and others are approaching this data as if there's only one axis, this sort of superstition or not superstition axis. But in fact, there's, there are other axes of belief which are orthogonal to that, and that's what it's really looking at. Uh, so, for example, there are certain Christian sects that hold things like astrology and the paranormal to be evil. They don't believe in them because they're actually contradictory to their faith. It's not, it has nothing to do with credulity at all. That's the wrong axis. It has to do with different types of belief systems. Right. And that's why I brought up the idea of what is a paranormal belief, what isn't, because what a lot of these uh, people are doing is they're, they're basically replacing one superstition for another. And what I brought up uh, when I wrote about this on uh, on the blog was that, you know, when I, w- I was raised Baptist and it was understood that using an Ouija board, you don't contact uh, the spirits of your dead loved ones. You are meddling with Satan. So I didn't believe in, you know, ghosts. I believed in demons. So... right. In in this case, the author would gladly uh, put ghosts under paranormal belief, incredulous belief, and demon under somehow different religion, and that's a that's a completely that's just wrong. Right, you know, it's absolutely that's wrong. Screwing around yep. with the data, right. It's interpreting different belief systems as being as, along the different axis of credulity to skepticism. Right? It completely blew the analysis. And also, there yes, there are people like Bill Maher who do not you know they do not believe in God, who are atheists, but are not necessarily are not skeptical. You know, so again, showing that the belief axis can be completely separate from the cr- credulous to skeptical axis or rational axis. Right, and my my point was, you know, so. Bill Maher is an atheist who doesn't believe in Western medicine. So would it be the writer's uh, assertion that if he were to suddenly find religion, that he would therefore suddenly become less credulous, more skeptical? Well, I guess it might depend on what kind of religion he decides to find. If he joins up with the Christian Scientology uh, or Scientology, (laughs) I mean, his beliefs would get uh, wackier. Christian scientists were the... Uh, the ones I called out on the blog because they happen to also not believe in Western medicine. They believe in faith healing and in homeopathy, which Bill Maher believes as well. So his belief Mm. in a God has nothing to do with his belief in Western medicine. Woo. 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 Yeah, (laughs) just profoundly, profoundly confused. I should say his lack of belief in God has nothing to do with his lack of belief in Western medicine. 
Just going to do one quick email this week. Uh, This one comes from Jim McDowell from the USA. And Jim writes, In a recent discussion with my girlfriend about prayer, I asked her to give me one single instance where she could demonstrate that a prayer was actually answered. She, of course, had no real answer, but responded that not everything real is scientific. How can I respond to that? Can something be real and not scientific? This is actually a question that comes up quite a lot. And that sort of not everything real is scientific gambit, you know, I've encountered that quite a bit too from believers or just somebody just trying to trump whatever scientific argument that I was making. The thing is, it's true but irrelevant because science is about what we could know, not about what is real. And something absolutely can be real but not, but not investigatable by science. The rub is how would you know? If it's right. not something for which you can have evidence – then how would you know if it exists or not? A way I like to think about it is that if something is observable, which means if you notice that someone has psychic powers, that means that it can be observed. It can be observed in a more stringent and more scientific manner. It's just, that's just a fact. If you can observe it, you can observe it better basically if it's interacting with the universe with the physical world as part of the physical world then it can be investigated scientifically can't you say things like love and hate are real yet not scientific well it depends on how you define them yeah i mean Uh, you can you can observe things like love scientifically you can certainly look at the way the the hormones the uh, evolution of the you could even just look at like, the psychology of people who are in love. You could, yeah. you know, there there are lots of ways to yeah. study. You could look at it from a sociological, emotions. historical, neuroscientific, evolutionary point of view. Absolutely, didn't, but didn't you know, can you that? can you measure the subjective feeling of of anger or hatred or whatever? No, because it's subjective. It's it's a personal experience. Right. But that doesn't mean that it's not scientific. And then if you talk about value judgments, well, value judgments are not factual claims about physical reality. You know, that if, if once you get to value or aesthetics or things that are not scientific, then you're not talking about a factual claim. You just have to separate that out. It's a completely separate type of thing. So the, the, here's the thing is you can't have it both ways. This usually comes up from somebody who's trying to have it both ways. They're trying to say this is real, but it is not amenable to scientific discussion. But then how do you know it's real? Then how do you know it really exists? You don't. So and and often it's a misunderstanding of the conversation, which you know when it's from a scientific skeptical point of view, it's how do we know what we know? How can we know things? That this is what we can say. This is what we can know. You can't just then introduce anything you want and justify it by saying, "Well, I could make up whatever I want because stuff could exist and and be outside of the realm of science." So you can't, again, can't have can't have it both ways. You can't be in science and and yet outside the rules of science at the same time. Well, let's go on to our interview. We are sitting here now with Sharon Begley, the science columnist for Newsweek. First, can you tell us about the talk you're giving at TAM? 
I will be talking about whether science journalists or the press generally have anything to do or can add anything, can bring anything to the skeptic's agenda, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of people who look at the creationism evolutionary biology debate or who look at stem cells versus uh, you know, the religious antipathy to stem cell research, or who look at crop circles or any of the, you know, any psychic phenomena, homeopathy, look to the press as hope for allies. Mm -hmm. And my message is probably, unfortunately, for the audience going to be, don't count on us. That's not mm -hmm. the role of the press. That's not something that we're good at. It's not going to happen. So you think the scientists should be filling that role? Scientists should be. And, I mean, certainly in an age of, you know, YouTube and scientist blogging and all the other media that they have to communicate directly with the general public, you don't need people like, you know, the mainstream media, as Rush Limbaugh calls us. Um, you don't need the intermediaries to do what you want to do. Um, yes, ideally perhaps that, you know, the New York Times and mm -hmm. the Washington Post and all the other top newspapers and Time and Newsweek would be doing regular stories that would advance their agenda, um, you know, in their eyes. Right. Um, but that's not what reporters do. And, uh, you know, if I were telling uh, this audience that message 10 years ago, I think it would be more disheartening. Mm -hmm. But as right. I say, in this day and age, um, you know, just like politicians can leap right over, you know, those pesky White House reporters, yeah. um, so can scientists. That's very interesting for me to hear because I'm a science blogger, and obviously we all podcast. And I've been saying for a while that, you know, these mainstream journalists are just not doing that good a job at reporting science stories. But then there increasingly are excellent science blogs that are filling the gap, and I think this is the way things are headed. So, of course, I'm very, it's very interesting for me to hear that coming from a journalist saying, yeah, you're right, this is, we're not, we're not getting the job done, you guys are. Well, exactly. And I think the press, um, I hope it's a, a particularly unique phenomenon or fallout of the current administration. Um, but the press is certainly not held in high regard by a large number mm -hmm. of Americans. So even if we were to enlist in, again in this you know, crusade or this, uh, you know, these goals, if you want to call them that, I don't think it would be that helpful. Um, I mean, too many people are just highly skeptical, to mm -hmm. use that word, of the press. And if we were to suddenly start writing a lot of stories, um, criticizing intelligent design or criticizing, I mean, any of the other things that get, you know, the TAM audience exercised, I think it would backfire. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the, to me, it's, it's not so much, um, that there need to be more features criticizing intelligent design, but when there's news related to intelligent design, I think, Personally speaking, I just want the journalist to be uh, skeptical and objective. And that to me is the problem is that, you know, especially you look at like vaccines, there's a lot of uh, mainstream news coverage of the vaccine controversy. And to me, that's a big problem that, that they're not being skeptical enough in that arena. So what do you what do you think about that sort of thing? The press is a slave to the idea of fair and balanced, even before Fox News co-opted it. Um, the press is not supposed to take sides. And unfortunately, and I think we can use that adverb in the case of the vaccine brouhaha or controversy, whatever you want to call it, there are people with letters after their name, those letters being MD or PhD, who argue that indeed vaccines can be dangerous to children, um, whether they're behind the supposed autism epidemic or anything else. Again, as long as there are people with anything approaching scientific credentials who argue that point, the press is not going to censor that side of it. 
So the, the way I have seen it is that the press often, because of the fair and balanced thing, I agree that that's good journalism in, in some contexts, but not in the science context, and that they equate the authority of an individual with the authority of the scientific community. That go along with what you're Absolutely. saying? Absolutely. Unfortunately, there have been too many cases where the scientific consensus has been proved wrong. Mm -hmm. And as long as reporters remember those, you know, isolated instances, whether you want to go back to continental drift mm -hmm. or whether you want to look at, and since this is your field, Steve, um, Alzheimer's mm -hmm. research, where the reigning paradigm arguably has not proved very successful at mm -hmm. helping people. Um, and there are iconoclasts um, in each of these debates, controversies, whatever you want to call it. And every so often, the iconoclast is right. The press does not want to be in a position of, again, to use that word, censoring mm -hmm. those iconoclasts. There's at least some impetus, some desire to give them their say, to give them a platform. I mean, as always, we try to indicate where the weight of evidence lies. Mm -hmm. That's the phrase that I keep coming back to, the weight of the evidence. I would say even more so than the vaccine mess or some of the other issues uh, where fair and balance has really done society a disservice has been on climate change, <laughs> where, again, the weight of opinion, um, the weight of the evidence was fast moving toward a particular point of view, namely that climate change is anthropogenic and mm -hmm. it's not going to be a good thing. Um, the press was way, way late on getting there. Why do you think that was? Because, again, there were people with credentials um, sitting at MIT who were arguing that any climate change that was happening was not anthropogenic, i.e. caused by mm -hmm. human activity. They had published peer-reviewed papers and journals that, you know, supposedly we should all know about. So again, there's always a little part of the journalist's mm -hmm. brain saying, oh my God, what if he is right? He and, you know, a few other people who argue that side. So although the press is often castigated for having miscovered climate change in terms of giving equal weight to mm -hmm. the opposing sides, if you actually go back and read the stories, and I'm not talking about the Detroit Free Press, and I'm not talking about Rush Limbaugh's radio mm -hmm. show, but you know your basic LA Times, New York Times, Washington Post, um, that kind of media. In fact, it was not balanced in the 50-50 sense. But yes, many of the stories did at least indicate that there was a you know quote unquote mm -hmm. controversy. And you know I didn't do many of those stories because I had the luxury both at Newsweek and I spent five years at the Wall Street Journal doing the science column there. As a columnist, you're allowed to express a point of view. You're allowed to wade through the evidence and reach a conclusion and tell your audience what that conclusion is without the obligatory knee bending toward the toward the other side. Um, but again, stepping back from it and reading those stories myself, I can see that, you know, paragraph, 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 climate change is anthropogenic, it's going to be a bad thing. And then, you know, again, the dutiful 17th paragraph mm -hmm. or whatever it was saying, on the other hand, Dick Linsett at MIT says, not so fast. Right. As the examples you gave, you're referring to um, news outlets which are at the higher end of the quality spectrum and that at least endeavor to be uh, neutral or, or at least fair. But we also often deal with the not-so-high-quality news outlets, which, of course, on the Internet, it's a great equalizing factor, so that's all the crap is out there with, with the good news. And also those like Rush Limbaugh, you mentioned, who have an ideological bent, so either just poor-quality or ideological news outlets. And they um, often will, especially, the, I think, actually, quality is a, is a bigger issue often, that they, in fact, invert it. They give 95% of the column to the lone crank, and then the 5% token skepticism with a blurb, which is actually the mainstream scientific opinion. And that's actually often what the skeptics deal with, is that kind of news reporting, which we don't, I think, honestly, we don't see at the Newsweek 
Wall Street Journal level often. Definitely a problem. And there I would say that if it's something that seems to have very few, very slight societal repercussions, such as well, I'll go back to crop circles. Um, mm-hmm. If you you know have crop circles on, you know this side of the balance and climate change on the other. When the press gets climate change wrong, that has serious mm-hmm. implications for what you know the the polity is willing to do in terms of you know backing particular candidates or supporting particular policy moves. You know whether the public believes or not about where crop circles came from. Probably not that much actual you know bottom line on the ground consequences. The reason the press will give, you know, in your example, 17 paragraphs to the crank and one paragraph to, well, in fact, you know, 99% of scientific opinions as otherwise. Um, I think those tend to be more in stories where it doesn't matter. I mean, I hope mm-hmm. that's the case. Um, but even when it happens in stories where there are, where it does matter in the sense of there are, you know, social and policy implications, that unfortunately reflects the fact that the press is also, the press is a profit-making enterprise. We need audiences. We need eyeballs, we need clicks, we need ears, we need, you know, an audience and we need readers. And the sad fact of the matter is that when you do a story that is contra conventional wisdom, when you do a story that people have not seen and, you know, the other outlets that they are exposed to or that come across their news feed mm-hmm. if they're on Yahoo News or whatever, that gets the attention. And, you know, I hope that the press is not equally in the informing and entertaining parts of the business. I hope it's certainly more in the former. Um, but there's no question that part of it is, you know, entertainment. Absolutely. So, so what do you see as the proper role or the evolving role of mainstream science reporting if it's not the traditional role that we thought of 10 or 20 years ago? To me, science reporting is under the same pressures as the rest of journalism, um, again, as new media just you know, take over. And it's become much more of a battle to win, again, to win audiences, to win readers. Um, as we see the outlets that we've been talking about laying off, in the case of Newsweek, scores of people, the LA Times jettisoned more than 100 people, the New York Times uh, offered buyouts and more than 100 people took it. And if you were to see the list of names, was, these would be people whose bylines you recognize. Mm-hmm. As we deal with shrinking resources and with eyeballs that have all sorts of places where they can go, there is greater pressure on reporters individually and also on their, you know, whether it's their newspaper, their magazine, their news station, to do unique stories. Mm -hmm. If the story that I'm writing, let's say, I mean, a typical way to do science journalism 10 years ago would be to look for the important paper, the hot paper in science or nature that week. Mm We don't do that anymore because the AP will do that. Lots of other outlets will do that. There's no benefit to either my readers at the Wall Street Journal or to my current readers at Newsweek for me to do a story that they've read everywhere else. So there is greater pressure on people like me to dig through that, to look for the, what would you say, the lesser read journal, the Mm -hmm. meeting that not everybody has attended, um, and to give readers something that they can't get everywhere else. Now, the result of that is that you know, readers are seeing perhaps equal number of stories about what was one that came through the noises that chimpanzees make while copulating. Mm-hmm. You know, I arguably, right, not the most important thing to come out of the journals that week or even that day. And in fact, lots of people did it, so maybe that's not the best example. But it's, if you were to look at, you know, the current issue of Science or Nature, um, and this was actually in PLOS, a journal or a bunch of journals that I love, but that's beside the point. Probably not in the greater scheme of things, the most important news that we could have brought readers 
But again, there's just so much pressure to be unique, to deliver the story that people will not have seen elsewhere. Otherwise, why are they going to go to, you know, nytimes.com as opposed to anything else.com? It sounds to me, though, from what you just described, that the system is slowly unraveling. It's getting, the more desperate these companies become in, in being unique and getting out stories that are going to catch people's eyes, the, the quality will, will go down with it. Somebody whose name I'm not going to remember said that the mainstream press, the, the outlets that we're talking about, there's even greater pressure on them to do the sensationalistic, the weird, the quirky, the whatever, than there is on, I mean, what would it, another example be, sort of livescience.com or space.com, um, because it is the old line newspapers and magazines that we've heard of that are just struggling to distinguish themselves. But again, the sad fact of the matter is, is if scientists and science students and science teachers wanted this, wanted the mainstream press to do, you know, responsible, interesting, important science stories, you know, they should have been voting with their subscriptions and with their letters to the editor. And I can tell you, having been in this business for a number of years, more than I'm going to admit to, um, my editors almost never hear from scientists saying either, I'm so glad you did a cover story on science, do more science. Um, that was the case at the Wall Street Journal as well. You know, we don't have any sense of whether scientists either buy the magazine, the dead tree version of the magazine, or whether they're clicking on the website. You know, it's, I mean, it's a cliche, but the public gets what it asks for. And if scientists are not in there clamoring for and being an audience for science journalism, you know, I mean, well, it's understandable that the the market will be driven by what the market needs. In other words, the company should be responding to what people want. However, there's still, in my opinion, a, a huge responsibility to rise above that as well, because the, you know, the lowest. It's almost like we're we're now uh, the media is is playing to the lowest common denominator. I think the bar should always be at a particular point, regardless of what what people are willing to pay for, and that's the problem. Is that because it's because money is so important in, in all business, that that downward spiral effect seems to be inevitable. It seems to to me that it's going to eventually take out most of print media. Yeah, but Jay, if the if the choice is raise the bar or go out of business, that's an easy choice. Yeah, I don't think we're going to see the day when every you know media outlet is like all Britney all the time. I don't think we're getting that. <laughs> all um, Britney all the yeah. time. <laughs> um, Jay would actually kind of like that. I think. Yeah. Um, and I, I actually also disagree with um, the idea that we do or certainly that we should give readers what they want. I think instead most people don't know what they want. But if you give them something interesting, they'll look at it and say, oh, maybe that is what I want. That's interesting. I never knew about that. I mean, they can't know that they want something if they don't know that that something exists. Um, if they don't know about, you know, cool research on neuroplasticity or whatever. They can't, I mean, they can't just de novo write to an editor and say, hey, you know, why not more neuroscience stories? You, as the journalist, have to be aware that that research is going on, throw it out there, and then people, one hopes, respond to it and say, oh, you know, that's cool, that's neat, I'm glad you did that story. Um, but again, uh, you know, mostly this argument is played out in policy wonkish decisions and debates about science funding where anyone on Capitol Hill will tell you that scientists have just been too quiet and that they don't make their desires known except you know with a few exceptions and sometimes that has uh, changed or gone up and down over the years the same thing pertains to the press that the the top editors don't hear from scientists or again science teachers whether you're in the lab or not saying do more science but we do hear from people saying you know, either run more movie reviews or more coverage of this or that. I mean, I think scientists just see it as beneath them 
to, you know, clamor for more science coverage. It's like, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter, except suddenly it does matter as a, as the quality goes down right. and as the quantity diminishes. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And there are efforts within scientists to say, nope, it's respectable. And in fact, part of our job to interface with the media and to do it better. We interviewed um, somebody from an organization. That's what they're doing. They wrote the book, you know, how scientists can talk to the media mm-hmm. to say it's our problem, not the media's problem. And, you know, I agree with that. Um, but getting back to the quality issue, I mean, sometimes it's just a matter of getting the story right. It's not a matter of, you know, the balance or sensationalism. They're just sometimes they get the story just wrong. And it, se- it seems to be among, to us, the science bloggers who are correcting the mistakes when they make it, that the big problem is that these stories are now going through generalist writers and editors and not science journalists and editors. Do you agree with that? I don't know if that's, I mean, that's determinable. I mean, you can, you can, you know, commission a survey or whatever and ask, you know, the top of the nation's top 100 newspapers of the science coverage done there. I would say more than half is uh, picking up AP or Reuters. Mm -hmm. Um, And at the wire services, the people who are covering science and will include medicine have, if not degrees in the field, although some of them do, they have been doing it long enough that I think we can, you know, charitably say that they are specialists. But at papers like sort of the second tier dailies, um, not in terms of quality, but in terms of audience and resources, mm-hmm. things like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, um, the Chicago Sun-Times, as opposed to the Tribune, the Minneapolis Pioneer, or I forget what it's called. Those papers, yes, as they have gone through a number of layoffs, it's all hands on deck. Um, mm-hmm. You have the person who is covering, you know, the latest sewer bond issue on, you know, the for the local communities also pitching in to do some, again, it tends to be more medicine stories because mm-hmm. these papers are not doing cosmology. They're not right. doing genetics. They're doing, you know, how did Tim Russert die and how did his doctors mm-hmm. miss that? Mm-hmm. Which I would say um, are areas where when you get it wrong or if you get it wrong, it has, again, going back to the idea of greater consequences, it's worse if you get something wrong in medicine mm-hmm. than if I mess up on the story about pulsars or something because mm-hmm. um, people are going to take your story about heart disease or cancer or Alzheimer's or anything else and go to their doctor and wave it in their doctor's face and say, see mm-hmm. this, see this, this works or this doesn't work or they're telling me to do this. Anyway, and I totally agree with you. I mean, the downside, the repercussions of making mistakes in those fields is just terrible. And one of, and it is a result of diminishing resources on the part of an awful lot of newspapers and magazines. Mm-hmm. And you said something else, which also an observation that I made is that on science news stories where the consequences are low, is how you put it, are treated differently than ones where the consequences are high. And from our perspective, what that means is that all, a lot of these fringe stories are treated as fluff, not as real news, which means all of the journalistic skepticism goes out the window and it's just amusing, an right. amusing freak right. show. Exactly. You know? And, but the problem with that, as, as we, as skeptics, you know, as we see it, is that that's a lot of the issues that we deal with. And that means that the media is treating these fringe science stories as fluff. And even though the consequences of believing in crop circles may not be the same as believing in some aberrant medical ideas, it still is contributing to a scientifically illiterate public, which I guess is the biggest issue that this is all embedded in. I completely agree. Um, and, I've been asked that a number of times, so I've come up with what is unfortunately a pat answer. Um, <laughs> and the answer is, um, most of the people who are reading, again, the dead tree version of journalism are now older. Um, we won't say old. Um, and by the time they get to me, I'll just, you know, keep it personal. It's too late. 
mm-hmm. in the sense of if you, and this is a talk I give to teachers, um, K through 12 teachers and sometimes, um, college university professors. If these people have emerged from 12 or 16 years of schooling and have not learned the difference between causation and correlation, they have not learned um, how this gauzy thing called the scientific method is supposed to work, let alone let's leave aside how it works in practice, but the ideal of how it's supposed to work. If they haven't learned about statistics, if they haven't learned about hypothesis testing, if they haven't learned all the the things that go into science literacy, and I would argue that those things more than a litany of facts Mm -hmm. are what constitutes scientific literacy, don't expect me to clean up after you. I'll do my best. I try to get it right. I certainly try to, I mean, I do a fair number of debunking stories myself in the sense of saying why this piece of usually medical research, mm-hmm. often published in JAMA New England Journal, is a piece of garbage. So I will mm-hmm. try to do that. But it's not something that I'm, you know, certainly not something I'm trained for. And if, again, if you're depending on me to do it, I mean, you know, talk about desperation. I mean, yeah. it really is the goal, the role of the education system in this country to give people, I mean, just that modicum of Mm -hmm. knowledge by the time they're up and out. Yeah, certainly we agree with you on that point, that science education in the United States is inadequate. And it would be nice if people were emerging from their K-12 education with at least the basics of scientific literacy. And it's hard to say the media has to pick up where education left off. But we also say what we think that we should try to fix it from all directions. you know. So yeah, the education system needs to be fixed, but it would be nice if the media were a little bit more scientific and skeptical too, because, you know, let's face it, even someone who is, who is intelligent and who you know, took their education seriously and learned a lot, they still are exposed to mainstream media 10 times as much as they were exposed to a classroom situation. So it has a huge impact on our culture. Yes, and all I can say of that is, you know, people do do the best they can. And when they write about stories that I think you correctly characterized as fluff or things that reporters regard as fluff, um, I mean, there will just always be those stories. Um, but I think that, again, the, the outlets of the press where quality does matter and where there is a sense of responsibility, where we do think that, you know, the First Amendment gave us not only rights but also responsibilities – there are serious attempts to sort through what is fact and what is fiction. You probably, you know, as well as I can reel off lots of stories where people looked at, again, claims of intelligent design. I mean, I can, there are a lot of st- stories that were done on, well, is the flagellum really an example of irreducible complexity? I mean, those stories were done. I did them. Lots of other people did them. Covering the Dover evolution mm-hmm. trial, um, intelligent design trial. Um, so those stories were done. Um, but again, were they done in the, you know, the Omaha paper in the Albuquerque paper, not to pick on those cities, um, but again, papers that don't have the resources mm-hmm. of the ones that we're talking about. I mean, I don't know the answer because I, I, this is not my field of study, but I'm sure you could get some smart journalism grad student to look into it. Again, the press takes its responsibility seriously, and I think that we reserve our, you know, our big guns for trying really hard to sort through it all for things where Again, I mean, people just think some things matter more than others. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like, you know, if you're going to talk about ignorance, I mean, science, science doesn't have any monopoly on illiteracy mm-hmm. or ignorance. Um, you know, huge percentages of people in this country don't know how a bill becomes law. Right. I mean, and don't get me started on, you know, geographic illiteracy. So, you know, it's like, where do you start? <laughs> right. That's right. I learned that on Schoolhouse Rock, by the way. That's, That's true. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well. <laughs> um, Let's talk a bit about the new media because we obviously agree with you that the new media is on the upward you know, path while traditional media is on the downward path. Although it's still 
mainstream media outnumbers new media by a couple orders of magnitude. I Otherwise, think. it wouldn't be called mainstream. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but those those lines are heading towards each other. So, can you give us any insight on like how outlets like Newsweek are looking at the new media, and are they looking to merge with it, incorporate it? What, how, what, how, or they just see it as a pure threat? No, we don't see it as a threat. Um, yes, we want to take it over, actually. Um, <laughs> um, so we have more readers online than we do in the Dead Tree version of the magazine. We have half a dozen, if not more, blogs. Some of them are blogs in the, you know, I booted up Grand Theft Auto this morning and I learned this about how to get to whatever level. And others are, I mean, I do a blog called Lab Notes, which is basically um, a forum for study stories, um, just little stories based on just a single published paper mm. that I just find interesting, um, but which doesn't rise to the level of a column. And just to digress for a minute, um, for a column, I try to do more ideas about science rather than quick hit news events, if we define those as sort of study stories. But, you know, it's, it's fun and interesting and I hope informative to take you know, a paper and, I mean, what as I was saying earlier, science or nature, I, I will do those in the blog just to bring it to people's attention. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, uh, Newsweek and, you know, again, the New York Times, the Washington Post all have blogs. Um, they have tons of video up. They have all sorts of new ways of presenting information. And we also link to on our site and allude to, note, talk about on the paper version of the magazine, blogs, YouTube posts, just, I mean, all sorts uh, sorts of things, because our median reader's age is somewhere north of 40, I Mm -hmm. believe. So these are probably not people who are on YouTube all the time. So, you know, maybe in order for them to hold up their end of a conversation around the water cooler, it was good for them to know that there was a YouTube video where, you know, the four cell phones were pointed at the popcorn, Uh, right? mm -hmm. And the popcorn popped. Um, You know, so that when someone asks, huh, gosh, do cell phones really put out so much radiation, infrared or otherwise, to pop popcorn, they can say, oh, well, yeah, I mean, I I heard about that or I even saw that on YouTube. And I learned eventually that it was put out by a Bluetooth uh, manufacturer and Mm -hmm. it was was not the kind of YouTube posting that perhaps people think of as going on that site. And I also learned that there were heating elements under the table and that's how they did it. So, again, we're trying to um, let people know that it's out there. I mean, the universe of blogs and other stuff online is just, you know, incalculable. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just do what we can to, you know, sort through it and, you know, point people there. Is the problem that no one's figured out how to make money off of it yet? Is that why it hasn't solved the revenue problem? We certainly don't make money off it. Um, the ad rate for ads online is just minuscule, um, even on a per eyeball basis. I, some smart person or not smart person on Madison Avenue has just decided that those do not have the impact that, you know, a pretty two page spread showing some yet another SUV mm-hmm. in full color, you know, has in the paper version. Will it ever make money? I don't know. I mean, people say, you know, they don't need, again, this thing called the mainstream media because, oh, I get all my news on Yahoo News or I just, mm. you know, Google something. And, you know, talk about illiteracy or ignorance. People don't seem to understand that, again, Yahoo, whatever example you want to pick, is taking the AP mm-hmm. feed. I mean, are, do we really, are we saying, you know, no more AP? So I don't know. I mean, I think the mainstream media has graduated way beyond being afraid of it and mm-hmm. is embracing new media in all its forms. But you think we're, just, we're in the middle of a transitional period and nobody and can really no see idea, where we're going. And I have yeah. no idea where we'll be in five years. Yeah. 
Well, Sharon, thank you so much for sitting down with us. It was a pleasure. A pleasure for me too. Thank you. Thanks, Sharon. Thank you. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Also. Okay. Here is item number one. A recent survey shows that online gamers are more physically fit than the general population. Item number two, astronomers have discovered a new class of neutron star called a gravitar, which is more massive than the previously calculated upper limit for neutron stars. Item number three, a recent nutritional survey shows that most children are getting more than enough vitamins and minerals in their diet. All right, Rebecca, go first. Okay. Online gamers being more physically fit than the general population is ridiculous, but I know that you guys are all online gaming nerds. So, Steve, you would probably seek out the one study uh, involving, like, four participants uh, <laughs> uh, that, that actually showed that they were physically fit, um, just to prove a point. So, I can believe that one. Astronomers discovering a new class of neutron star. That's, uh, I'm a little suspicious of that. Only because of the name <laughs> that it's that it's called a gravitar, that makes me really suspicious because it, a gravitar is, um, I mean, it's spelled differently, I think, than what you're saying. But a gravitar is uh, an avatar you use online, so I don't think that they would name it that. <laughs> Didn't they Google first? You know. <laughs> um, which is more massive than previously calculated upper limit for neutron stars. I don't know. I'm, I'm suspicious of that one. And a recent nutritional survey shows that children are getting more than enough vitamins and minerals in their diet. Man, that's, uh, that's a tough one too. And, you know, where, where was that done? Is it, I mean, most children around the world or most children in the U.S.? Can I get a little? Yeah, yeah. I guess I should have included that. That this was published in Britain. Ah, ah. Uh, that one I can believe because <laughs> I, I think that kids are um, kids might still be uh, eating more poorly these days, but it, they're eating more, and maybe they're because of that they're still getting enough vitamins and minerals. It's just that they're also getting loads of sugar and fat. Uh, so you know, I'm going to go with the the gravitar as being the uh, the fakey. Okay. Two. Okay. Evan? Oh, God. All three of these sound like fiction. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> you bastard. Okay. Yeah. So the recent survey <laughs> shows that online gamers are more physically fit than the general population. Now, so here's my problem with this one. The survey of the online gamers. I mean, you know, people can lie in surveys, <laughs> right? I mean, of course I'm physically fit. Look at my character on the screen. I mean, that could be, you know, that could be somebody's criteria for, for all we know. So I'm a little wary of that one. But then I read number two about the astronomers discovering uh, the Gravatar, which, yeah, I'm a little puzzled by the name. It just sounds a little too cartoonish. But that doesn't mean it's wrong. Uh, more massive than the previously calculated upper limit for neutron stars. We had something recently in which we discussed the upper limits. I think it was the black hole. That was the black size. holes, yeah. 
The third one, I think Rebecca's right. I think the, yes, children are probably eating more and therefore they're getting enough of the vitamins, minerals, plus all the fat and grease and other things. Um, so I think that one's okay. So I just kind of have to take a guess and I'll, I'll agree with Rebecca. I think the Gravatar one is fiction. Okay, Bob. Yeah, I think uh, I think you guys pretty much nailed it. Um, the gamers more physically fit than the general population on this on the face of it. That's like, you know, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. But I think you can kind of make an argument, possibly. And I, I liked Evan's idea of this of a, of a survey, which implies you know, it implies not determining how fit someone really is through uh, you know, you know, blood pressure and running on a treadmill and, and other good indicators and stuff. Um, people could definitely would overestimate their their general fitness. So I, I I have a problem with it, but not as much as number two. Number two, I just cannot buy. I can't think of any way to buy this. Exceeding the previously calculated upper limit for neutron stars. I mean, that's a, a fine calculation based on um, what we know about particle physics and all this stuff that, boy, if we were wrong about that, that would be a huge, huge gaping hole in physics. I mean, you know, when a neutron star gets a little bit too big, it becomes a black hole, period. End of story. I mean, there's not, you know, that would be such a fundamental mistake. I can't imagine them making that. Um, and number three, it makes sense. Vitamins and minerals aren't a problem. It's sedentary lifestyle. It's too much food, too much fat, too much junk and not the, the specific vitamins and minerals. So I'm going to say two is fiction. Uh, the neutron star, more massive than previously thought, just can't, can't be. All right, so you all have no problem with the notion that uh, most children are getting plenty of vitamins and minerals. And no this, problem. Only if I'm wrong with it, I have a problem. This is science. <laughs> this was no published problem. in the British Journal of Nutrition. They looked at a uh, representative sample of children aged 4 to 18, they did a, a national diet and nutrition survey. And it turns out that, yep, most kids are getting plenty of vitamins and most mis- minerals with a comfortable margin, in fact. And, uh, yeah, that, so it, the, the key is that, there's, that the kids have access to a variety of foods and that in that variety of foods that they get the nutrition that they need, although they are eating too much sugar. Yeah, on top of that. So, yeah, yeah this is the, the problem with with diets in the West now is too much. It's not that it's it's too little. Yeah, we just went to a dinner at Italian restaurant last week. The portion, I literally barely ate a third of it. It was unbelievably a huge mm-hmm. amount of food. I just, just take it Yeah, home. restaurant portions are huge. And they and they cook yeah. with so much butter and stuff because you gotta it, be real makes careful. it makes it tasty. Yeah, but they don't they don't consider calories. Uh, so let's go to the second one. Second. Astronomers have discovered a new class of neutron star called a <laughs> gravitar, which is more massive than the previously calculated upper limit for neutron stars. Now, Bob, you thought that uh, there's no way you could go above the the upper limit, unless, of course, there is a new process occurring that has not been identified with previous neutron stars. You bastard. What is it? So they actually they discovered a, a neutron star. Wait, this wait. Is really science cool. or so fiction? It's a very bizarre celestial wait, object. Hang on, hang, hang on, hang on. All right. Hang on, <laughs> hang on. Uh, relax. I think we won this, but he still wants to. They have discovered a most bizarre celestial object that emitted forty visible light flashes. Did any of you see this news item? Very cool. No. And then Bob disappeared, just like flashed forty times in the visual spectrum, and then disappeared. And it is a neutron star. But it's not a gravitar. Okay. That's fiction. Ah. It is, however, a right. magnetar. Yes. Have you ever guys Ta- heard now of that magnetars? is a magnetic yeah. field. 
Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yes. So magnetars are neutron stars mm. that have very powerful magnetic fields, a billion, billion times stronger than that of the Earth. Wow. That's pretty strong. Yeah. And the thinking was that magnetars, which are probably young neutron stars, um, that their, their magnetic field just disappears mm-hmm. over time, and that eventually they just sort of quiet down into regular old neutron stars. And what they think this object is is a magnetar in the process of becoming a, a non-magnetar, wow, regular neutron star. And, and they're calling it – it's the first time it's been observed. It's been hypothesized, of course, but I think this is the first time it's been observed. This is the quote-unquote missing link connecting magnetars with regular neutron stars. Cool. And mass is, n- is a, nothing to do nothing with it. Nothing to do with it. Right? Right, Just good. magnetic field. Yeah, that would have been bad. Right. So we won. So you, so you guys are right. Yeah. So magnetar, gravatar. Air guitar. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, which means that gamers are more physically fit than the general population. This was a, uh, a survey that was done. The Olympic Village. The Palo Alto Research <laughs> Center. This is done. This is a study done um, out of the University of Southern California and the Palo Alto Research Center and University of Delaware. And it was, and it, it was more than a survey, though. I just said survey because it was mainly a survey of people's uh, gaming habits. But also, they asked some basic questions like, "What's your height and weight?" And then, uh-huh. um, so so yeah, it's not like how fit are you, but just sort of inferred it from like, right, how many right. times a week do you exercise? What's your height and weight? Things like that. And again, the same survey techniques were used. To, to compare it to the general population, and they found that a lot of the stereotypes of a online gamer actually were not borne out in this survey. One is that you know it's basically fat loser teenager guys, and it turns out that um, there are more people in their 30s playing online video games than in their 20s. It's actually wow. it's more common as people get older. Uh, to play video games, at least in that you know that cohort, that uh, g- that online gamers do exercise more frequently and were not as over- overweight as the general population in the, in the United States. Um, one stereotype is true: is that it is eighty percent male, twenty percent female. However, female online gamers log more hours and you know they play more obsessively and more loyally than their male counterparts. Really? So women, are when they do play online mm. games, are more obsessive than, than men. Uh-huh. Compulsive, perhaps. Yes. So that was fascinating. Fascinating. Those were a little counterintuitive or yeah. ag- against the, pre- the preconceptions. So women geek out more Still than nerdy. guys. Is that the Yeah, apparently. Thing? Not more you got that, Rebecca? You're good? Hmm? What? Girls geek out more than guys when it comes to these online games? I could believe it. You're okay with that? I'll buy that for a dollar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I tended so. to, you know, I I don't play online games now, but when I used to have more time, actually, I've never played online games, but uh, you, you give me a PlayStation 2 and I will kick any of your asses. Right. Seriously, anything. Yeah. Geek. Or a Genesis, Sega Genesis 2. My nine-year-old daughter, man, kicks my butt at Wii Tennis. She's good. I only, I, I played that once, actually, and I uh, I did clean house, I believe. Yeah, my daughter. My daughter beat me as well. And Steve and I, uh, we you know we played we played tennis. We had a tennis court in our backyard. We played a lot, so we were good. We we're on the tennis team. I was a captain of the tennis team in high school, so we oh. we know how to swing. But um, I don't know our you girls. Know they're good. I mean, I've gotten good at the game too. At the Wii tennis, I've gotten good at it. But she's just better than me. She beats it's me more funny. frequently than I beat her these days. Good for her. Mm. 
Yeah, she's very, very. She has a very intuitive grasp of how to interface, you know, with this technology. Which is, I think, that's what leads to this notion that it's the younger generation that's more into into playing video games and online games. But you know, thirty, forty year olds that, that that's the age group that we, you know, the thirty and forty year olds grew up with video games. So I'm not surprised at all that uh, that they play more games, and they also have more disposable income. You know, twenty year olds don't have anything. <laughs> Some on average. So congratulations, everyone. I didn't get you with the gravitar. Thank you. It was a good try. Gravitar. Isn't a black hole a gravitar? Maybe. Gravi- graviolis. <laughs> so, Rebecca, you're going to fill in with a quote this week. Oh, yeah, I am. Woohoo. The, uh, our quote comes from a listener who sent it in. J.D. Mack sent this in. Um, this is a quote from Dr. Brian May, who uh, you may know as either a famous physicist or a famous guitarist. Or both. both. Yes. And he said, I think the popular view of science is a solid body of truth shared by a whole lot of learned men in a room all agreeing on the answers to the questions of how the universe works. Whereas nothing could be further from the truth. The one truth that I see emerging from the history of science is that experiment has always surprised theorists, Einstein included. Brian May. <laughs> Ryan May. Nice try. Yeah, that's a good effort. <laughs> no. Solid effort. Wait, wait, wait. Let me try again. Hold okay. On. All right. Try it again. Swing. Ryan May! <laughs> <laughs> better? Much better. Good job. Oh, yes. My, my neighbors are calling the cops. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks, cops everyone. going to come try to arrest the guitarist from Queens. <laughs> A couple quick announcements. Again, another reminder, New York City Skeptics, October 10th, James Randi. Check out their website, October 11th in Fairfield, Connecticut. We're having our live show, the first annual Perry DeAngelis lecture and live show. So we're going to have uh, Steve Mursky and Terrence Hines and maybe some other you know, super secret guests. We'll, we'll keep you updated as, as we confirm who's coming. Um, so, so please come. Also, I wanted to point out that recently we have been doing a Skepticism 101 series with our SGU 5x5 short format podcast. So the SGU 5x5 is a 5 to 10 minute podcast we've also been putting out once a week. It is a G-rated clean podcast, so there's, there's no um, swearing or anything, no off-color jokes. We, there's very little, actually no banter. We stay on point. Each episode is single topic. It's G-rated. It's actually quite suitable for the classroom. A lot of teachers ask us for stuff that they could use for the classroom. And so recently we've been focusing on what what we're calling Skepticism 101, where we take key concepts to science and skepticism and just talk about that for for five to ten minutes. We've already covered the scientific method, Occam's razor. This week we did pareidolia. We did cold reading. And we're going to continue to do that for a while, just sort of going through all the really core key concepts of skepticism. So check that out. It's a good introduction. And a good brush up. Yeah, for, for kids and again for the classroom or just for people who want to have an idea what the show is about. So give it a listen if you haven't listened to it yet. Boston Skeptics in the Pub is happening uh, Monday, September 29th. Same place as usual. Details at bostonskeptics.com. We are also jointly celebrating Science Blog's one millionth comment. Our guest speaker will be Blake Stacy, who huh. is awesome, and on Science Blogs. We'll be talking about the physics of hallucination. Oh, cool. Cool. So it should be fun. 
One final announcement. We have our fourth SGU video up on YouTube. This is video that we filmed while at Dragon Con. We were waiting for the new animations to come in for the intro and outro, and we've, we finally got that. So uh, keep an eye out there for more video even yet to come. You can get to this by going to YouTube and looking at the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe channel, or you can just click on the video link from uh, the SGU homepage. Thanks again for joining me this week, everyone. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. You're welcome. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.